You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he believes nothing that he hears and only half <laughs> of what he sees. It's Jeff McLarge, huge. Hey, everybody. <laughs> How you doing? How you doing, Bill? I'm fine. <laughs> oh. I'm, you know, even though it's been, you know, a couple of months here, I'm still getting used to being unmasked and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's still a little off-putting for me. Yeah, uh, like I remember back in the summer, like the first time I went grocery shopping without a mask, I felt like I was walking around in my underwear. You know? Yeah, I'm in the rare position where I have a fantastic cold, the first one in almost the two years now, I think. Oh sure, right? Yeah, I ended up with strep and bronchitis and knocked on my ass for a week. Yeah, yeah, you you don't sound great. I am not great. I am feeling. I'm on the tail end of it for sure. After a, a course of. Uh, of bacteria destroying antibiotics. Oh, get but, yourself uh, some yogurt. Yeah, yes, I'm gonna need that and some kombucha apparently, and I need <laughs> to go eat some dirt from the backyard. But um, <laughs> it's one of those weird things. After the year and a half, two years that we've just had, I started feeling crappy. I'm like, well, that's it. I'm gonna die. Better to make my will now. And <laughs> you know, it's a cold. It's the it's like the uncommon cold on the tick. But yeah, you're like uh, so used to not being sick that all of a sudden you're sick. You're like, oh no! And yeah. then it's like, I have COVID nineteen. I will be killed. I'm fully vaccinated and everything, but there's variants that are able to get around that sometimes. And so like, you get super panicky. I never was a panicky person, and I'm not a germaphobe by any stretch of the imagination. This is the weirdest cold I've ever had because it's made <laughs> me really worry. And right. normally I'm like, yeah, I've got a cold. I just power through it. I eat chicken soup, take two aspirins, and call me in the morning. That's how you treat the common cold. Right. And this time I'm like, I need to go see a doctor. I need tests. I need to, do they have to like put a new battery in something? Is Because I'm going to the, st- the store to buy cold medicine. And it's been really, really weird. Speaking of going to the store, for 16 months, the local like supermarket up the street from me had little arrows on the floor for which directions for you to go in. And then like I brought this up over the summer, I think, but it's worth mentioning again. As soon as those arrows came off the floor, it was like the wild, wild west in there. Yeah, it's it was it's like that here too. Like nobody knows that I can go anywhere I want to. My yogurt's in that aisle, and I'm gonna go against the flow of traffic. Like I remember, there was like when the arrows first came off. Like the next time I went grocery shopping, eighty percent of people were going in the opposite direction. Like they were just like waiting and waiting. Right. It's like, all right, the arrows are off. F- the police. I'm gonna walk anywhere. I'm gonna go without backwards. <laughs> Up here in the in the live free or die state, everybody just turned into Roombas, Roomba vacuum cleaners, just bouncing <laughs> off each aisle and going one way. I don't even know how they find figure out what. I bring a list to the grocery store when I go. 
And these people are just like going wither, hither and yon and banging into each other, and it sucks. I go grocery shopping. I am the complete opposite of people that go to Taco Bell. Like every time I go to Taco Bell, there's somebody in front of me looking at the menu like they're in there for the first time. Like, oh, I don't know. What's it's a burrito? Like, it's, Does that have but, beans in it? Because I, I don't really yeah. like beans. Yeah. So, but I go grocery shopping. I literally buy almost the exact same thing every week. Right. So I know where it is. I can do it blindfolded if I had to. But I'm um, yeah, you know, everybody like walking around, touching stuff, and in each other, and being close to one another. Like I have people standing like right up on me. Like go away. Didn't you learn enough that six feet is where you're supposed to be away from me? <laughs> and I'm not somebody who's generally like crowd averse, but like I am now. I've been conditioned to be this way, and it sucks. Yeah. And. I have to like really think about not being like that crazy antisocial germaphobic twerp at the store who yeah. just glares at people. Or somebody goes for a handshake, you're like, yeah. Uh, no, I don't touch I'm, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no touching. Yeah, I'm yeah, no touching. I'm still big on the the knuckle bumps or the two sweets. Yeah. Oh, I do the live long and prosper, man. I'm all 1960 <laughs> Star Trek. Yeah, have a great. Don't get any closer to me. Phasers on stun. Shields up. <laughs> so, getting on to the show, I have my award-winning and always wildly popular trivia question, and you are four in a row. Can we uh, make it five this week, Jeff? I don't know. Uh, this week's trivia question is, there's always going to be a first, what was the first movie released in the DVD format? Ooh, can I ask a clarifying question? Yeah. Can you tell me which studio released it or which year it was released? The first DVD was released. I don't know the year, but I know it's Universal Studios. I'm going to think for the length of the show, everyone. All right. Just as per usual, and I'll give you an answer at the end. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, I believe it is your turn to start, but I'm going to start this week because I'm I'm pulling rank. I'm I'm going to start this week. All right. Mm -hmm. So, this is the week beginning September the 20th, and on September the 20th, 1977, an episode of Happy Days aired on ABC television. You are familiar with the phrase, jump the shark? <laughs> I am indeed. Well, this is where it started. Yes. Uh, jump the shark is a, oh, I, I love this word, and I think I love it simply because I have a hard time saying it. Colloquialism. Ah, yes. Well done. Yes, thank you. It's not going to happen again. But jump the shark is a colloquialism, meaning when you've run out run out of ideas and you just start in just throwing nonsense. So Happy Days had been on for I think about five seasons by that point. Uh, season three. I think this was season three. Oh, really? All right, let me say yeah, it again. Season yeah, it was early season three episodes, but they went through again. Seasons were different. It was like. 40 episodes a season in the 1970s, so oh, okay. they were they were running through all kinds of stuff. Still fairly early on. They were filming an episode. They were out in California. I guess, uh, I think it was that Richie was going to be like auditioning for some Hollywood thing or whatever it was. Yeah, and then Fonzie had felt that he had lost his cool. He wasn't cool anymore. So in order to get his cool back, he was going to jump a shark that was like a shark that they had like fenced <laughs> off in the water and he was going to water ski jump over this shark he did it wearing a leather jacket because of course he did yeah there's a lot to unpack here like who let this happen who built a ramp near the shark etc 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 i just remember watching it and you know i was like a little kid and i thought it was cool and mm -hmm. richie cunningham said to fonzie if you get your legs chomped off by a shark, don't come running to me. 
I always count, uh, sort of thought of this episode the same way I thought of the Brady Bunch episode where they went to Hawaii with the cursed tiki idol. Yes. Was it was one I look, looked forward to in, in syndication because it was dumb. Yep. But it had an event in it that I could remember. Like, I can't remember the plots to too many of these shows. No, I just remember Vincent Price was in that episode. Right, but I remember Vincent Price was in that episode and the tiki... Like, there's a whole bunch of things that are take place in that episode. But, like, in this Happy Days episode, I can't tell you what happens in one Happy Days episode to the next. I don't I don't know. Yeah. I can't remember when Arnold left and Fred Molina, or whatever his name is, uh, the other guy that took over Arnold's. Yeah, I remember Chachi burning the place down. Remember, I don't remember when the Fonz was like, hey, I'm going to go make movies. And he left, and then Chachi took over. And I don't remember any of that stuff. But I remember the stupid Jump the Shark episode because I remember watching it as a kid and how overdramatic it was. Yes. I mean, like, yeah, he but- started the jump, and they cut to commercial. And I was like, my God. It was continued the next week. It was a two-part oh, episode. Well, there you go. So a two-part episode, right. Yeah. So, yeah, you had to wait a whole week to see him land and be like, well, that was anticlimactic. Yeah. But it's still one of those things, like, punctuation that sort of static of whatever was going on in that show to that one event that I can repent that I can remember the phrase jump the shark almost got replaced it like it, it, they tried to replace it with nuke the fridge you mentioned that because of the um, kingdom of the crystal skull movie yes which was equally bad I guess as far as ridiculous goes let's get on to the 21st all right September 21st 1937 a, a book that's become sort of really popular in circles of time so becoming popular and then fading out and becoming popular and fading out the Hobbit J.R.R. Tolkien's first book and clearly a children's book is released in 1937 by George Allen and Unwin that's the publishing company huh. in London when Tolkien wrote this book he was a teacher at Oxford and it was grading student papers and on the back of one paper he wrote in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit and that's sort of where the book, literally where the book starts. From there, he sort of wrote the book and tied in some of the weird mythology he was doing in this other big project. He was like a guy that studied languages and made up languages and things. Right. And sort of banged together this story. And it was, when it was published, it became incredibly popular. It was like Harry Potter popular uh-huh. in 1937, 1938, to the point where he got bugged to write a sequel to carry on the story of Bilbo Baggins and the survivors of the, the big battle uh, at great king under the mountains mountain mount doom he ended up spending like the next 15 years banging on what would become this monstrous non-children friendly tome called the lord of the rings the hobbit was actually first the hobbit was first oh wow i didn't know that the first piece of like non-academic writing he'd ever done and he wrote it on the back of somebody's paper it's like uh what's this all about I, I I see how I've got a, a B, but when I turn it over, it's in a hole in the ground. There lived a hobbit. Is that is, is that code for yeah. something? I, I I noticed I got a B, and, and then I couldn't help but notice your crazy ramblings. <laughs> The whole back of this is filled with notes, but it seems like a story about little people eating breakfast. I'm not quite sure what what you're at here. I I know little to zilch about any of this. I remember my friend Craig had like a concentration game with the Hobbit cartoon characters on it. Been actually a media property for a little while. Mm -hmm. So in the 70s, the Rankin Bass Corporation, the company that did like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and stuff. They commissioned uh, an animated version of The Hobbit, yes. which was shown on ABC TV. Right, that's what that's um, what he had the card game from. That's what I remember, yeah. Right, that's still probably the best adaptation of the book mm-hmm. to, to be had. So there's that. And then it was made into a film following the success of The Lord of the Rings by first starting with Guillermo del Toro, who then left the project to go make Pacific Rim. They brought back director Peter Jackson to try and make sense of what Guillermo del Toro was doing. We ended up with like this three, three-hour monstrous giganto movie um 
based loosely on a 138-page book. Yeah, if you read the book, it would take you less time than to watch the movie uh, series, right? Yeah. Yeah, you could. And the book is a really, it's a really fun read. I'm not a fantasy guy by any stretch of the imagination. I generally don't enjoy fantasy writing. Yeah. But when my kids were younger, I read the beginning of The Hobbit to Ian when he was maybe five or six, and then I gave him the book to read. And over the next few months, he worked his way through it. I did the same for Meg. Yeah. And then I went back and read it myself. And I've, I've got, I think I've got like two or three copies of it that people have given me over the years mm-hmm. that uh, I always go back and every now and then read through and find it. It would be really enjoyable. So... All right, so moving on to the <laughs> the 22nd, um, uh, you and I have a collective favorite uh, vehicle <laughs> automobile company. Yes, we do. Yeah. Uh, September 22nd, 2015, Volkswagen admits that 11 million cars have been wrongly programmed to appear to emit lesser emissions than when they are running normally. So, uh, <laughs> our good friends over at Volkswagen, I guess they had programmed it, because you know whenever you get your car inspected for uh, emissions and all that, they used to stick like a almost like a rectal thermometer up your tailpipe to, to do it, but now um, they just plug it into a computer, like everything gets run off the, the thing. And they had, yeah, they go from the service, the service port and the dashboard. That's where they get all the emissions information from. So, yeah, Volkswagen had like pulled a fast one and they had tricked it so that whenever you had something plugged into that port, the emissions would read less than what they actually were. The emissions control system that was built into the engine yeah. because it made the engine way less efficient. Yeah. So you wouldn't get the gas mileage that they were advertising that the car got, the diesel mileage that it got. Right. With the emissions controls running, it got like the same emissions you got from regular cars, except you had to pay the cost for diesel to drive them around. Ah, okay. Yeah, so that was a fast one from Volkswagen. What a- they got in trouble. Yeah, they got in a lot of trouble. And that kind of like actually like killed a huge section of their business too, didn't it? Yeah, it's their TDI engines were at the time were like the forefront of diesel. And there was a time, just as, as hybrids were starting to come onto the market, right. Diesels had established a foothold pretty much because of Volkswagen's TDI technology, that turbo diesel injection is what TDI stands for. And because it doesn't release the particulate matter that old school, I don't know if you've ever driven around behind or in an old school like diesel Volkswagen. I worked at a a gas station as a uh, teenager, so so yes. My brother had had like a Volkswagen Vanagon from like 1980. It sounded like the more cowbell sketch from uh, (laughs) Saturday Night Live, like ding, 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 as it was driving around and big clouds of black smoke that would come out of the back because the particulate matter from diesel is very dirty. So TDIs made that a lot better. Right, and that was like, you know, 2015. So we're talking about... The same like time frame whenever like gas prices were fluctuating back and forth between three and four dollars a gallon. And and diesel was still hovering around two seventy five to three twenty, or at least where I right. am. And the mileage that you get from diesel is, you know, a lot better than what you get from gasoline. Right. So that was like that yes. was like people were like buying that so that you know, buying diesel so they could save on fuel. Right. And the key, like the thing with the TDI is it made it so that diesel didn't smell bad. It wasn't clangy and noisy and it wasn't slow because diesels tend to rev slower. Right. Yeah. While you were tinkering around with your fuel economy, maybe you could have fixed that little ground wire that went from your computer <laughs> to your engine that shorted out and cost me $700 every time I had to fix it I, I remember, over the course of I, two I, years. I remember, ugh. I remember asking you, because we, we both had the same car at the same time. Yeah. How's your car running? And you said, my, my Farfic Nugent is far from running good. 
<laughs> and I remember, like, when I finally fixed the problem, you were like, hey, was it the ground wire that connects the engine to the, uh, to the computer? I was like, yeah, that's what it was. I'm like, yeah, because I had the same problem two years ago. <laughs> yeah. And then I went and I bought another one. So. You're a damn fool is what you are. I know. I know. And every now and then I still, like... They don't sell in anywhere near the That's, numbers. The, the This thing really hurt Volkswagen. Yeah. Like, What do we got for the 23rd? September 23rd, 1962. The very first full color from production start to the end of the series. The very first color TV series is broadcast on ABC. Do you know? It sounds like a trivia question. It is almost like a yeah, trivia yeah. question, yes. And it was uh, Hanna-Barbera's The Jetsons. Oh. It was the first fully color produced TV series in, uh, in history. I just made a Jetsons uh, reference yesterday. I was talking about Rosie's Pineapple Upside Down Cake. Ah, I have, uh, I bought, because I'm generally not a person that buys things that have logos and labels on them, but I bought a Spacely Sprockets t-shirt, Bill. Oh, that's cool. Yep. And I wear it proudly and people go, what is that? Is that where you work? And I say, no. <laughs> I have a Camp Crystal Lake t-shirt that I wear and people always ask me where it is. Ah, it's uh, just our, <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah. Uh, so the yeah the Jetsons were like the absolute polar opposite to the Flintstones, even though it followed yes. the exact same model. And they crossed over at one point. Like yes, in the they 70s. did. That's right. I remember Astro. You know, they was in the Flintstones world, and he was very excited that there was lots of trees. <laughs> I I like the Jetsons. I always thought the Jetsons was a funny show. Yep. And I liked the way that it sort of played with. It was a super dupe like postmodern futurist vision of the future, right? Which I thought was really cool. If you want to go back and talk to people about or show people like well how did people see the future in the 50s that's the that the age of futurism right the jetsons really captures it well mm -hmm. yeah it seemed very dangerous too because everybody lived like like a mile above the earth yeah <laughs> yeah yes and everybody flew and yeah i always wondered why people didn't just like at the beginning of that where poor george is running on his treadmill outside looking down apparently a mile to the earth below <laughs> And there's no, there isn't even a handrail on that thing. Yeah. Oh, and there's two handrails on the one at the gym, and it's on a floor in a building. <laughs> there's, there's, you know? There's no OSHA out in space, right? Right, exactly, right. OSHA. OSHA's down there. You mentioned a Roomba before. My friend has a Roomba, and he named it Rosie because it's a, a, a robot, you know, a cleaning robot, so. Yeah, so yeah, same. I have a friend that did the same thing. Yeah. The, seems to, it seems to be a popular name for folks. In and around our age bracket. Yeah, I though. told you mine, right? Mine's called Dummy. Yes, Dummy. <laughs> From the, uh, the Iron Man series. The Jetsons actually didn't last all that long. It wasn't popular when it was on. Right. Mostly because it was made in color. It was made, it was made to be broadcast in color. But there wasn't a lot of color televisions at the time. Right. And, 62 was early in color TV's history for sure. Yeah, so the novelty of having this like futuristic thing in black and white, they didn't really mesh all that well. I mean, it was very popular in syndication. I remember watching it when I was a kid and, and really loving it. Right. When it was in production, yep. when it was a thing, it wasn't really a thing. <laughs> in the, that's true. There's a short time in the 60s when there were primetime cartoons that were on. Like, right. we talk about the, the golden age of cartooning kind of being now with Family Guy and, and American Dad and the other stuff. Bob's Burgers, that's, yeah. That's on in the evening. Bob's Burgers, that's on in the evenings. But in the 60s, it was the Flintstones was an evening cartoon. The Jetsons, Johnny Quest. There were a couple of others as well. Wait Till Your Father Gets Home in the early 1970s right. that were all on at primetime. And the Jetsons sort of was right in the kind of at the beginning of that before that fad really kind of took off. The Flintstones are, are the ones who sort of were there from the beginning kind of to the end of it. And Wait Till Your Father Gets yeah. Home, the father was voiced by Tom Bosley from oh, Happy Tom Days. Bosley. Yeah. yeah. 
Wow, I haven't seen that show literally since I was probably seven. I don't think I've watched it since it aired. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I could probably hum you the theme song still, but I don't remember yeah, much so about it. Yeah, so could I. Yep. I could do. I could do that too. And I remember you had a kid named Chet. Yep. And was that's a, literally all I remember. From it was show. a burnout. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so moving on to the 24th. Oh, here's something semi-interesting. September 24th, 1952, the first Kentucky Fried Chicken opens. Any guesses as to where it was? It wasn't in Kentucky? Yeah. That's like the, Lexington, Kentucky seems, or something? Seems, or? Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer, right? No, the actual first Kentucky Fried Chicken was in Salt Lake City, Utah, of all places. Okay, so color me confused. Yeah, all right. So our friend Colonel Sanders is an interesting story. He used to have a, a, a restaurant called the Sanders Court and Cafe, which was like, it was for travelers. You know what I mean? It was like a like a roadside. And it was yeah. it was in Kentucky and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, he was a cook. And then he retired from that. He had his recipe, uh, you know, for cooking chicken uh, right. with, with the, uh, the 11 herbs and spices and all that. And he also had a way to cook it quickly using pressure cookers right. and all that. So he had this right, right. he had this method of doing it and he was trying to like sell the recipe to other places and nobody wanted to buy it. And he actually literally drove around the country in a car trying to sell his recipe to different places and nobody wanted like anything to do that it. That must have been terrifying. There's a guy who pulls up in a car and he's like, hey kids, come here. Yeah. <laughs> and he's dressed in a white suit with like a string tie and he looks like Colonel Sanders, you know. And- <laughs> He's got his cane, and he's like, uh, you like chicken? And then he opens his trunk, and he's got buckets of chicken there. Yep. Take take a piece. Take a wing. And opens up his suit jacket with this just like in, index cards hanging from the inside. I got a recipe. You know. Hold on. I got some coleslaw in my pocket. You're going to want this, too. <laughs> and the amazing mashed potato gravy. So, um, <laughs> no, I don't want to know where that came from. He pulls it out of his front pocket, <laughs> just like a handful of mashed potato gravy. Mm. Oh, it's still warm, too. Good. Oh, goodness mm. me. So, anyway, yeah, it's such an interesting story that he got like not even 10 years later, or around 10 years later, he had over 600 Kentucky Fried Chickens nationwide. And at that time, it was the largest fast food franchise. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, people can only eat so many like fast food burgers, and they're like, Meh, you know. Yep. Meh. Chicken is is generally inexpensive, and they used to sell it. in I mean, I remember my dad used to sometimes for Sunday when I was a little kid. Yep. On Sundays, my dad would be like, "Let's go for a drive," because that was a 1970s thing to do. Right. And we'd be all right, and they go get a bucket of chicken, and we drive around and eat chicken and throw chicken bones out the window. <laughs> like I remember doing that as a kid, like on a Sunday, it was like great. It was super fun. Yeah. You know, I don't know why, but the chicken was wicked good. Yeah. But good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm actually not a big fan of Kentucky Fried Chicken. I think I think we talked about this before when we were talking about Popeyes. Yep. I like their sides fine, but I I very rarely go to Kentucky Fried Chicken. But I just really like that story that here's this guy that led his entire lifetime and then just was looking to make some extra pocket change in his retirement, and then he ended up starting a huge franchise business. Yeah, right. right. And uh, he lived a long time. He was still alive and making commercials like. I remember seeing it when yeah. I was a kid, so I'm gonna guess uh, into the early '80s at least, right? Did didn't they make a movie like last year, a Lifetime movie with Colonel Sanders that was like a weird half commercial, half full length movie? I know I did not dream that, and I'm and I don't have a fever anymore, no, so I know it's not a yeah, fever Yeah, I I don't know. I I don't generally watch Lifetime. I tried watching this horror movie on Prime a couple of weeks ago called High School Exorcism because it sounded amazing. But it ended yeah. up being a Lifetime movie. I was like, what the hell am I watching? It's called A Recipe for Seduction, and it stars Mario Lopez <laughs> as Colonel Sanders. 
<laughs> I almost need to. And it's a Christmas romance movie. I need. I, oh my god! If and if it's a lifetime, he probably beats the hell out of somebody. I may have to watch this. That sounds like everything I need in a in a holiday motion picture. All right, let's get on to the twenty fifth. The twenty fifth is one of my favorite holidays, Bill. It is National Comic Book Day. I thought. Wait, hold on. Free Comic Book Day is in May. I because I used to do, do the promotions for that all the time. Right, right, right. This isn't Free Comic Book Day. You have to pay for your comic books on National Comic Book Day because oh. it's a holiday for comic book creators and publishers. But it's National Comic Book Day. It's the day where you leave out milk and cookies for <laughs> Spider Man. So, oh, so this is the day where the comic books are actually good and worth reading. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and there are a lot fewer people bouncing around inside the comic book store going, How much is this one? <laughs> is this one really $4 for 20 pages of comic book? Yeah, so, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's National Comic Book Day sort of celebrates the, the art form of, of comics. I'm not sure when it started, but the art form itself started around like 1915. Right, when, yeah. Uh, a couple of different newspapers started bundling the comics that they had purchased into magazine format. I mean, I grew up with comic books around the house. My father loved comic books, and he had, like, all the classic illustrated and stuff like that. And he got my brother and I started on Batman and Superman. But my favorite comic book hero has always been Spider-Man because I, I liked him swinging. I always thought that was really cool, like a cool way to get around town. If you have buildings. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought like it would suck to be Spider-Man like in a suburb. Yeah, in a, residen- a, a residential neighborhood, yeah. <laughs> You're petitioning the city to move the streetlights a little closer together. <laughs> so uh, who was your favorite comic book superhero or I, I remember when I was when I was a kid, my dad gave me a couple of books. One was called The Rampaging Hulk, which I think was like a big, like a large format book that you bought at like a, a Kmart or something. Oh right, yeah, the ones that are like 11, 11 by seventeen or a little bigger. Yeah, yeah. eleven by seventeen. And I remember, I remember looking through that book a hundred million times as a kid. But my favorite, like you, was Spider-Man because Spider-Man was on TV. So there's the Spider-Man cartoon from the '60s. Yep. There was the Spider-Man TV show with what's his face yeah, the guy from as the Br- Peter Parker, the guy from the Brady Bunch, right? I still remember enjoying as a kid, uh, I re- even though it only ran for I think two seasons. I remember right? trying to enjoy them. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, because he didn't swing. Uh, I didn't care about it. And then there was like Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And there's always been like a cartoon version of it. So when I started to collect comic books, the first comic titles that I started to collect in any regularity were the the various Spider-Man titles because he was the character I was most familiar with. Yeah, same. I Back in the video game console wars between Nintendo and Genesis, you know, trying to make up my mind, did I want Super Nintendo or did I want the Genesis? There was a Spider-Man game available for the Genesis and that's how I made my decision. Because I wanted that Spider-Man game. And then there was a character, Venom, in the game that I thought was really cool. And that's when I started get, uh, getting into buying all the Spider-Man comic books and stuff. Yeah. Do you remember the Spider-Man game for the Atari 2600? Yes, I do. It was actually yeah. decent for a 2600 yeah. game. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Swing up the building. And it was kind of like the same mechanics as Donkey Kong, except you didn't run anywhere. It was kind of like Donkey Kong. Climb, climb and swing. Yeah. Donkey Kong and like Pitfall kind of like... Yeah. Yep. Combined, right? And with the Green Goblin. Yep. So, I mean, comic books are huge now. It's it's a weird time for being a comic book fan, I think, because the media properties are so popular with everybody that comics are trying to appeal to such a wide audience now, and the distribution channels are narrow, and I don't know. It's it's a it's a weird time. Like, I, I kind of burned out of comics right when they started the New 52. Yeah. It was because I, I bought the first issue of Flashpoint at the time I was a DC reader. And I was like, okay, this is a short book. It introduces the idea of Flashpoint. And then at the end it says, to continue this story, you need to buy these other 14 comic books. I'm like, 14 comic books <laughs> every month? 
So yeah, that, that runs into money, right? Book you know, man. for somebody that goes to a lot of comic cons and stuff like that, comic books are actually you know dying down in popularity again. A lot of the the cosplay people are doing other media properties now, like you know yeah. Tel- yeah, TV yeah. shows that were originally based on comic books, but. You know, it comes and goes in waves. There was they were huge in the nineties. They were huge again a couple of years ago. It's dying down, but I'm sure it'll, it'll I'm sure it'll pop back up again. We'll see. I mean, there was a when AT and T was trying to kind of divest itself of I think Warner Brothers, and ultimately they they did. There was some rumors that they were going to close the whole comic book division of DC Comics down. Oh wow! Um, yeah, they scaled back from something like two hundred and twenty comics a month to. 14 right, some, yeah. some crazy number like that so they just wanted it to sort of feed into whatever the cinematic stuff or the tv stuff was going to be to provide a back channel sort of to get people interested in that and to tie into those because that's where their money comes from it's not the comic friendship it's the comic business right right exactly yes so wrapping up the week september 26 1990 your friend and mine u.s vice president dan quayle oh boy yep uh, he's our new what Paul. can he not spell this week? He's our new Paul McCartney. Uh, Dan Quayle states on September 26, 1990, I support efforts to limit the terms of members of Congress, especially members of the House and members of the Senate. Yeah, well, that's good. I, <laughs> I especially like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, especially peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. Yeah. This guy, like... I, in the intervening weeks since we've decided to make him our cause celeb of this year, he leads a think tank now, Bill. <laughs> I, I, I don't I understand. That, yeah, like he's like the Yogi Berra of political. Right. Uh, like what Yogi Berra was to baseball, he is to uh, politics. And, well, except uh, Yogi Berra was a great catcher. I don't think that... <laughs> I don't think that Dan Quayle is good at anything. But I was actually looking up some of Yogi Berra's... Uh, uh, which, by the way, great name. But Yogi Berra's malapropisms, and one of them was, you really should go to people's funerals because if you don't go to theirs, they won't go to yours. But, yep, our good friend uh, Dan Quayle. They probably just give him a coloring book and tell him to sit right, in the back exactly. of the room. Look, yeah. it's National Comic Book Day. Here, go read this. This is DuckTales. <laughs> and here's something fun. His name is not even Dan. His name is James. His middle name is Danforth. Well, look, that's like Jughead's if, real name. I want you to put yourself in Mr. James Danforth Quayle's shoes and put him on the that, right feet by right accident. Feet. Yeah, right. Put him on the right feet by accident. Imagine that it's your first or second day in kindergarten, yeah. and the teacher says, "Now, James, 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 you and you as James Danforth Quayle are too busy like staring off into space." And finally, she just tries any other name. Danforth? Nope, that doesn't. Dan? Oh. Dan, it, it, that that got something, so that just stuck at that point. All right, let's pick up and go on to the celebrity birthdays. Celebrity birthdays. Hey, I, I get to start first this week, don't I? You sure do. Since you made the executive decision to start first earlier, I'm going to make the executive decision to do the birthdays first. Ha ha! You go on with your bad self. <laughs> September 20th, 1956. Character actor Gary Cole is born in Park Ridge, Illinois. Now, if you don't know who Gary Cole is... Isn't he name, from Different Strokes? He is not. That's... Gary Not Coleman. Gary Cole. That's Gary <laughs> Coleman. Yes, different guy. Okay. Gary Cole was Bill Lumberg in Office Space, if you've ever seen it. I don't know anybody who hasn't seen Office Space, but Bill Lumberg in Office Space. He provides the voice for Harvey Birdman, attorney at law. Was on a spinoff show of Babylon 5 for like one season. And yeah, that the TV show that's definitely not a Star Trek show. Definitely not a Star Trek show. And he played the father. He played Mike Brady in the Brady Bunch movies. 
Oh, from the 90s. Those are awesome. And he was yes. fantastic as the father, too. And he looks a lot like Robert Reed. Yeah. But he's, yeah, he's really funny. And, yeah, uh, he had the cadence down, like, perfect. Really, he's good in everything, so. All right, so moving on to the 21st. September 21st of 1912, animator Chuck Jones. And if you don't know the name Chuck Jones, you should. Um, he was the animator for Water Brothers. Basically, all of the really recognizable Water Brother cartoons that you know and love, like Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Roadrunner, Wile E. Coyote, all of them, and the, you know, and the now uh, retired Pepe Le Pew and Speedy Gonzalez, those were all drawn by Chuck Jones. He did other stuff after Warner Brothers, right? He went off with the Patty Freeling when they did their, they did like the Pink Panther stuff and yes, and some other things. And he did he did some things with them, and he did uh, like a Ricky Ticky Tavi adaptation cartoon. Oh, I love I love that. That was fantastic. Pulled a bunch of other stuff. So he's definitely definitely super talented, and one of the. One of the guys that transcended like the 40s, 50s, 60s and into the 70s would still doing animation, I think, like some of the other producers and, and directors weren't by then. He also did uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas in 1966. Yep. Like I said, and, and who doesn't love all of those those cartoons? So moving on to the 22nd. September 22nd, 1956, a former resident of the Worst Song Ever Club, Debbie Boone. Lights up my life, yeah. Who lights up my life like a birthday cake with a million candles on it. Uh, she was born in Hackensack, New Jersey to famous father, Pat Boone. The white milk of, of white milk, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't think she did anything else after that, so well, anyway, I guess one one hit is one. She basically made her father seem soulful, yeah. Yes, that's definitely. All right, um, moving on to somebody with a little more soul than uh, Debbie Boone. September 23rd, 1949, American icon Bruce Springsteen. He's probably still in concert right now. Yeah, he probably is. Bruce Springsteen is, I guess you could say, notorious for putting on very long concerts. If you go to see Bruce Springsteen in concert, you get your damn money's worth. He would usually play for like two and a half, three hours, if not more. And I remember one time my friend had gone to see him in the late 80s or early 90s, whatever it was. There was like a, a snowstorm that was going on while the concert was going on because the plows had to like, you know, plow out the streets and plow out the parking lot and nobody could really leave the concert. I mean, some people left early because of the snowstorm. But right. Because of all this uh, stuff and they couldn't get the trucks moving and all that, Bruce Springsteen, after doing a three-hour concert, actually came back and played for another two hours. Aye, aye, aye. Yeah. That's, I, I mean, that's the commitment to like keeping the audience happy, right? Yeah. The last thing you want is like people to go get hurt and... You know, how else do you keep them from getting frustrated with sitting around like at the equivalent of the Providence Civic Center for another two hours? Right. He's one of those people that I put in that category, like same category as Bob Dylan, where I don't necessarily like his music, but I like it when people cover it. Like, because if you've ever heard Frankie Goes to Hollywood's version of Born to Run, if you haven't heard it, you need to. It's super good. I'm not a huge fan either. Like he was became super popular in in my teenage years when Born in the USA came out, and I always yeah. disliked that record. I don't know, maybe it was like the punk rock in me at the time, but yeah, I didn't get it. I didn't, I didn't dig it. I didn't listen to it. It was too poppy, etc. Yeah. But as as an older person, I I've grown to like his earlier stuff, especially um, quite a bit. So all right, moving on to the twenty fourth, September twenty fourth, nineteen thirty six. A man makes his fortune by sticking his arm up the ass of a stuffed animal. <laughs> 
just Jim Henson. Uh, the <laughs> Probably a better who, way to put that, but yeah. <laughs> he realized that he could fist the stuffed frog and make millions. Uh, Jim Henson, a puppeteer who kind of got his start. I don't know what he got his start doing, but he ended up washed in with like the children's television workshop in the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. And help bring Sesame Street to life. And from that, uh, introduce the world to the Muppets, which were fully realized characters, amazingly enough, that were puppets. Had effectively a, not only a fan base with little kids, of which I was one, but with their parents and go on into the sort of variety show space on television and movies and all sorts of stuff. I have Disney Plus and not all that long ago I started going back and watching the Muppet show, all the original Muppet shows from the 70s and even yeah, though they're, they're funny. Even though it's like, you know, 45 years old some of these episodes, they are timeless. Yeah. They're yeah, still they're funny. very funny. The only thing that's really aged is like some of the celebrities that they have on. Right. Like the first episode that I watched, the celebrity was a dancer. I have no idea who she is. I couldn't re- I couldn't tell you her name. And then another episode was another singer-dancer guy. You'll know his name. I can't think of it. He was in Remo Williams. He was Chun. Oh, yeah. That was uh, Joel Gray. Yeah, Joel Gray. He was like one of the first guests on The Muppet Show. And I was like, yeah, I don't know who this is. But later on, as it got you know more and more popular... Celebrities were literally pushing each other out of each other's way to well, be the on the show. Like, yeah, I think at the time that, that that show started and Joel Gray was the second guest, like I think Cabaret had just come out and that won a couple of Academy Awards and he was super famous for being in that. Right. So it's like yeah. they had good guests. It's just that we the world has aged and the show hasn't. Right. You know what I mean? You know, it's yeah. like I think Ethel Berman was a guest on that, and people are like, "Who the hell is Ethel Berman?" I'm like, "Ethel Berman's funny." Yeah, and, you know, and Rita Moreno. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, yeah. going on to the 25th, a uh, man who made a living out of being wrong. Uh, his <laughs> his name was Edgar C. Weisenant. It looks like Weisenant, Weisenant, Weisenheimer, whatever. He was born September 25th, 1932. He was an American NASA engineer and Bible student. Uh, he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, which sold four and a half million copies. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a, yeah. that's a lot of copies. Uh, he pre- right. Yeah, he predicted the rapture would occur between September 11th and 13th, so September the 12th, apparently, 1988. I don't know what you were doing that day, but I don't remember anybody flying up to space. Uh, I was picking up all those clothes I found in my yard. (laughs) So as the date loomed, Trinity Broadcasting Network provided special bulletins with instructions and updates for preparing for the rapture. It came and went without a hitch. (laughs) So then he uh, said, oh, I I guess I forgot to carry the one or whatever he did. He revised his date to 1989, then 1993. The 1994, et cetera. You know, it's we've talked about the Millerites on here and a little bit about Seventh-day Adventists who all have that same sort of, the end is nigh. Yep. The end is nigh in approximately 14 months. Please give me some money. I don't know why it, it still surprises me. Right. That we live in the, in the the world and the country that we live in sometimes, Bill. Because like, if someone said, I'm going to give you pizza on Thursday, and they didn't give you pizza on Thursday, and you said, hey, you didn't give me any pizza on Thursday. I paid you for the pizza. Mm-hmm. Where's my pizza? And you say, oh, you know, I'm going to give it to you next Thursday. And the next Thursday comes and you say, where's my pizza? You go, oh, you know what? I'll give it to you next Thursday. That'll be $5. And you give $5 and the next Thursday comes and there's still no damn pizza. At what point do you stop going, where's my pizza? Or get that guy or whatever. (laughs) Nope. They just don't do it. Edgar Wiseman died in 2001. And I don't know. I don't have here how he died, but I am shocked that he wasn't 
beaten to death with rocks. Right, right. Exactly. Beaten to death with rocks and not like sporting equipment because these people sold all their sporting equipment because they thought the rapture right. was going to happen. Which is another right. question. If the rapture is going to happen, why are you selling stuff? Just put it aside just in case, you know? Right. right. Yeah, you hedge with, your bet, man. And what are you going to do with the money? So his first book was 1988, right? Yes. So, so okay. So September 26, 1987, if he had only... If he only lived longer, he might have been able to like rope in our next birthday girl, Kim Yo Jong, sister of Kim Kim Jong Un. I'm hoping I'm saying the Kim family's names right. The like second in command in North Korea, who gets a tremendous amount of photographs of her taken doing state business and always looks supremely irritated. I'm I'm going to describe her as the unreasonably attractive sister of Kim Jong-un. She is very attractive, yes. She, and like you said... Dangerously so. Yeah. Like, being probably one of the most dangerous people in the world, she's unreasonably attractive, which makes her all that more attractive to me. I see, I see like, stories of, about her and pictures of her, and I think, like, James Bond would not have a chance. Not a second, he would no, not. He no. would not, he wouldn't say it, he wouldn't last. Like, so, Kim Yo-jong, I can tell you have... Poison gas hidden underneath your volcano. Oh my god, I've been shot in the belly! And that would, that would like, and she'd be like, yes, bang, 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 take his corpse out of here. And I just have a feeling that that's like kind of how it would go. Yep. You look up pictures of her, and she's generally just like this, like, death glare, very pensive, stoic face. But occasionally you see pictures of her smiling, and you're like, oh my god, you're in the wrong business, honey. You could be, you could be a K pop song. Yeah, you could be making hit records. You could be writing. The worst song ever. All right, Jeff, what do we have in the docket for this week's worst song ever? Our worst song this week, it, I, I'm just going to spill this. I don't like Ween. Who? I don't like Ween. Ween. Ween, the band. Ween. okay. Ween. 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 Minus a couple of things, but generally I don't like Ween. I was first introduced to Ween with a song that was literally all over MTV and all over my brother's stereo and all over his girlfriend's stereo and all over everything called Push the Little Daisies, which... Yes, I remember them. That yeah. is an incredibly irritating song. And I like dumb, funny, avant-garde, unnecessarily complicated outsider music. And I hate this band i hated this song and i did not like the record it was on and i don't like it yeah i think the the thing with ween because ween is definitely like you described as outsider music but it was like the outsider music that everybody piled on at the same time so it became this like insider outsider music i guess you would say yeah yeah so yeah there was here was a song called push the little daisies by ween and here's the clip that a lot in their music where they they use like pitch shifters on their vocals <laughs> yes yep so so there's a, a little bit about like I, I don't want to talk too much about push the little daisies because it sucks <laughs> um there were people that were totally into the song that i didn't want to sit around and listen to records with right like because because the rest of their taste of music were super irritating 
Yep. I'm the kind of person that if I don't like something once, I don't generally go back and mess around with it too much unless there's a compelling reason to do so. Yeah. So I don't realize. I might have heard Ween songs that I didn't realize were Ween songs and thought they were perfectly fine. Turns out there's one in a, a SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Actually, SpongeBob SquarePants as an entity was inspired by a Ween album. Right. An album they put out in 1997 called The Mollusk. And uh, yeah, that was basically what inspired the dude, I can't remember his name, but to create SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah, Steven Hillenberg. Yes, specifically a song on that album called Ocean Man. Right. And that's the song that got used in the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Right. And if, um, if you go to their Spotify, you know, it lists their top songs and all that. Yeah. That song, Ocean Man, has 75 million listens. And then their next popular song is a huge drop off, like 7 million listens. So. Because, yeah, I'm sure that parents are like, I'm just going to put music on for the kids. Put on the SpongeBob SquarePants soundtrack. Right. That song's going to play every time, right? Right. Telling you before we started recording this today that I went down a, a rabbit hole on YouTube right. uh, around this band. I'd watched a video where somebody said, like, the time that Pizza Hut hired Ween to, to write a jingle. Yep commercial jingle and i thought that's interesting and i watched it and it was kind of interesting but the preface to that was this is a band who released an album called 12 country golden greats that one only has 10 songs on it (laughs) and two the history that this person described of the album was incorrect and i was like a country i like kind of like country music now and now i'm interested in in like long form jokes i went back and i listened to 12 golden country greats yep (laughs) i found myself like really, really enjoying it, really liking it, and thought it was really funny and really silly. And there's a long-form joke in the record of, of how the record was made that makes the record compelling to listen to. Outside the fact that it's called 12 and there's only 10 songs? That's funny by mistake. Okay. So they had originally recorded 12 songs, but two of them didn't make it to the <laughs> oh, right. to the pressing plant or something, and they pressed it with 10. Oh, okay. So that was a mistake, and they had already done the cover art, or they took two songs out, and they had already printed the cover art, yep. so they just sent it out as is. There's a song on that album They've called Piss Up a Rope. Yes. I There was a friend of mine that used to like do that song live at like acoustic gigs and stuff like that, and I didn't know it was Ween. I just thought it was, I thought it was a song he wrote and all that, and then somebody yeah. said, no, it's that band Ween, and I didn't really... I didn't know Ween. I think I knew that one song there, like Push Up the Daisies. I was like, oh, not that freaking band. But I like the song. I just don't like the recording because they do that pitch shifting on the vocals on that song as well. They do it on a couple of songs on 12 Golden Country Greats. Yeah. They have an interesting story. Like before the show, because I don't know much about them, I watched like a documentary. I guess they were like middle school friends. The two guys at Ween have been friends like forever. They kind of vary genre from album to album. Actually, they'll, they'll even vary genre from track to track on album to album. They don't have a very specific style. What's kind of cool about 12 Golden Country Greats record is the idea that they that they put it together was they, they went to their friend who was a producer and they said, we want to do a, a country record. And he said, well, come to Nashville and we'll do it like they did it in the late 60s. What, what drunk? Went to Nashville and they hired a bunch of like A-list session people yep. and they wrote the record. Those session people performed all the music and they didn't perform any music at all except for singing. And then the record came out and they did like this style of country record that was where sort of Americana music kind of came from in the n- late 1960s. And nobody did records like that in 1995 when they recorded this. Right. It just wasn't done anymore. And so the guys that are playing on this this album are all like, they've got thousands upon thousands of hours of recording with people like Johnny Cash and Hank Williams and right. Willie Nelson and, and all manner of, of country superstars. Yep. They've been on thousands upon thousands of records. It's like the guys from Toto. Right. Like they find themselves on like a, on a record with like lyrics of like, for piss up a rope, uh, help me scrape this mucus off my brain or... <laughs> 
or whatever, and like these ridiculous, silly songs. I guess the record is not liked generally by Ween fans because it's not sort of the same as a Ween record, and it's not liked by country fans because it seems to be making fun of a lot of country music tropes. But I think it's friggin' hysterical. I love, I like it. Getting back to Ween as a band that I don't like. I actually don't know much about them. My my big introduction to them, like I said, was Piss Up a Rope. And then somebody played Push the Daisies for me. I was like, oh. But in preparation for the show, I went and I listened to a couple of Ween songs. And there's one album that they put out that looks like the Commodores album cover. And I listened to that. I was like, yeah. this is actually not all that bad. And then I listened to another song. I was like, oh, okay, this is the Ween I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're very weird. They're very out there. And that's, I think, what a lot of people like about them. I know Henry Rollins is a huge fan of Ween. And then when I went see Dead Milkmen live, whenever they were doing Punk Rock Girl, instead of saying Mojo Nixon in concert, they said Ween. So, yeah, they yeah they have a, a quite a following. But the song that they're, well, not most famous for, they're most famous for the SpongeBob song now, but prior to that, the song they were most famous for, Push the Little Daisies, is garbage. Yeah, and it's and it's it's one of those like if you were listening to like Frank FM or or Mark FM or whatever that format is, right? Yeah. The format being like you find somebody's iPod on a train and there was a ween song on it it would be pushed the little daisies and that's the one that most people know because it's the one that was all over mtv and got made fun of on beavis and butthead and yep. they never became huge because of it right they didn't go anywhere after this they just sort of vanished but well i'm sure spongebob threw him a couple of bucks yeah all right so wrapping up the show before we go and say good night uh i do have my trivia question can we make it five weeks in a row for mr milk large huge so the trivia question was what was the first DVD release? Somebody's going to be first. Which was the first? The first DVD release. And you said it was Universal Studios was the first company to release a DVD. Right. You got a hint and you shouldn't have. But uh, here's my hint. Uh, Universal Studios, huh? And uh, I'm going to say it was like right around 1994. No idea. I'm just going to jump out and say like the Lion King. <laughs> oh, good, good. Which is not Universal Studios. No, not at all. That's a Disney movie, right? Right down the street from Universal, though. So, nope. The first DVD release, first movie released on DVD was Twister with Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Well, that's, that was an auspicious release. That movie went a million places. Yeah, and well, they had their they had their own. I don't want to call it a ride, but they had their own like thing over at Universal Studios for a long time. So, but that is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will catch you back here in seven days. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. All right, All right. bye, everybody. bye, guys. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibly or twwwbly. Subscribe if you haven't already, and tell your friends. Twibley is approved by Emperor Norton, protector of Mexico and friend to Canada.